to Deep Focus. My name's Quaid, and my co-host here as well, Nick Gilligan. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, though, of course, it won't be to our audience because they'll be getting the previous episode and this episode one week apart. <laughs> That's <a> so. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to introduce a new series that we're going to do semi-regularly. Just uh, it's something that me and Nick have always talked about. We've always uh, found movies that we think were maligned. Um, and so that's why today's episode is, of course, titled uh, Justice for King Arthur. Uh, what is it? Legend of the Sword. Yep. And you're the one that initially brought this to me, this film to me, and why it was maligned. So you can go ahead and kick off with that story if you want. Right. And before I get to King Arthur specifically, I think um, – just in Western film in general, there's there usually comes along a film or two um, every, you know, probably every year that just really illustrates how bad uh, Western critics are at their job. And I, I think when when you look at these films, um, you know, they, they usually do something that's outside of the norm. Right. Um, but. You know, it's usually something that's uh, actually pretty masterful in terms of filmmaking. It's just not something that you're used to seeing. And critics are so um, kind of like herded. You know, they just they're 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 like uh, following the leader, essentially. So they, they got to go with the flow in terms of what public perception of a film is. So like when something isn't um, immediately accepted, it's hard for them to uh, come back and recognize what this film did. Right. Yeah. What what strikes me about critics is their entire field is sort of about um, social signaling to some degree. It's about what's the idea of a critic, a critic, a good critic. Right. This is the idea that they have or that's sort of accepted is someone that has good taste. Right. right. Someone that is able to decide what's good and what's bad and communicate that. So none of them want to be the guy that stands against the herd, especially when the herd itself is headed by the top critics, the Pulitzer winning critics, you know, um, these people are just as bad as any of the ordinary, you know, lowly critics. And so why would you contradict them? It's this, um, you know, it's social status of social signaling. Um, so it creates this feedback loop where they all say the same thing. And then really what it comes down to is how original or snarky uh, they can say the same thing. So, when a film starts getting piled on, it's just a horrible feedback cycle. And we've, we've seen this with a lot of films. Um, and it's funny because a lot of these films will have good reviews by the audience. In fact, right. that happens a lot nowadays where you'll see favorable Rotten Tomato by the critics and disfavorable by the audience and vice versa. Right. I think this so, is a 7 out of 10 by the audience, which I would say is a lot more fair. Yeah. When you see uh, something, something that kind of illustrates... Uh, how Rotten Tomatoes and just internet criticism has kind of changed the face of criticism, in my opinion, is that if you look at films that were, um, it, like, if you look at films that were of this vein that were initially panned and then, you know, came back and people were like, wait, hold on, this is actually really good. <laughs> you know, um, those have like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah. Like pre, pre Rotten Tomatoes, pre, pre Rotten Tomatoes existing, right? And that's kind of where I, where I, make this distinction that like a lot of these a lot of these critics do just follow the herd right because if a movie really did break form did kind of like bring something new uh to the uh to film in general right you wouldn't have 
100% of critics on board with that. Yeah. Right. It, it, um, it's contradictory to the very idea of it. Like they're supposed to be almost to like the aristocrats of taste, you know, but as right. opposed to that, they literally are finding the mainstream. Right. That's what but, their entire. It, right. And now that they know that they're supposed to like that movie, like years later, they all, you know, say that it's a masterpiece. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as this film is concerned, I would actually say that this might be one of Guy Ritchie's best movies. Um, mm. uh, I, I would say that I, I think that it might be a masterpiece. I'm not quite sure yet. Um, there's like a couple things here and there I would have changed. But, yeah. you know, nothing, nothing crazy. Just like a few lines here and there and maybe like um, a different shot once in a while. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. but the things that this movie does like amazingly um, far outweighs the things that I would have changed. Oh, yeah. Big time. Right. Um, but can, can we just get into King Arthur? Is that yeah, cool? Go yeah. For it. Um, um, actually, uh, before we do that, I would like yeah. to point out something here. Just uh, to capstone the uh, brief introduction about what we think about critics and where criticism is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy, I believe he writes for the New Yorker magazine or something. He's a Pulitzer winning critic. We won't state his name, but I will read off his tweet. Um, this is a tweet he made recently. And I think it, I think it does a pretty good job at summarizing, um, how this community thinks about themselves. All right. Here's his tweet. A good critic always puts more into writing about artwork than the artist puts into making it. The artist only creates. The critic must plumb that creation and also write creatively enough to deliver the full volume of the art while also creating a thing of beauty and clarity itself. Um, To be fair, he did try to uh, um, explain that more on Twitter (laughs) in the the replies as he was getting rightfully trashed by everybody that wasn't a critic. Yeah. But... uh, (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't believe that was in good faith. I just think, uh, you know, he's a man that worries about social status and signaling and he was getting trashed. So he wanted to try to take it back a little. Right, right. But I mean, like, how pompous can you get? I know. <laughs> that's that's And it just goes against, um, it also just goes against one of the tenets we've talked about, which is like, we could talk about the meaning and messages of films of all we want. Like, but like, part of the thing both me and you agree about is like, you make the film in order to prove the thing. You know what I mean? Right. And that's sort of goes against a lot sort of like some of the the ideas behind the principles behind criticism you know which is right. like you're not going to be able to actually adequately express either the problems or the insights of the film um in a literary format because you know well, uh, well, and it's I think, not cinema itself I, I think that also illustrates just how far these people have fallen away from actual criticism right mm-hmm. and how like they they just kind of uh they remind me a little bit more of like, I don't know, like fashionistas, like trendsetters, you know, where like they, they kind of fall into this vein of taking films and cr- turning them into part of your identity rather than, you know, appreciating them as your film, yeah. you know, because like so many people wear their opinion of films as like part of their identity, like some sort of uh, addition to their aesthetic rather than yeah, rather than just having an actual opinion about the film. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes like more about one. something you can yeah it's, it becomes something about uh, something more that you can pull out at a party right yeah um and that's i, I think i think that's just like a little bit um disingen- 
you know it's not it's not the right way to look at it in my opinion it's it's not genuine right Mm -hmm. um but they kind of cater to this mentality where uh the reason for watching the film is not to appreciate the film is not to garner any sort of lesson right but it's uh to make a fashion statement about yourself yeah right yeah um yeah and that's that's a little bit disgusting in my opinion yeah i agree Um, but hard agree that's just the way things are so let's go ahead and get into it then you want to start off with uh yeah yeah um so obviously the obvious one right off the bat with uh king arthur is that this film is a uh is a master class in montage right Mm -hmm. um and a lot of people a lot of sorry i shouldn't say people a lot of critics have an immediate negative connotation to montage right but what montage is is it's a form of um it's it's a tool that you use in film right and it can be used poorly and it can use be used well and i would argue that in this case it's used extremely well and to the point where you know other filmmakers could should be studying this and looking at how can i implement montage into my film to further uh my film right how how can i use this better yeah right um and right off the bat at the beginning of the movie you kind of get into this um uh this expository montage which i think is really cool because you know i think when you think about montage used poorly you immediately think of um you know something where they're where they're just being like oh they're about to undergo change let's just like um show this change throughout you know and i shouldn't say that's poor use of it that's just the most common use right uh they just show this um like you know if someone's working out or something or getting in shape or like learning how to fight right and yeah exactly and like that's been done so many times um which doesn't necessarily make it bad but um that's kind of what we expect out of a montage right to the point where like now you could maybe consider it lazy that someone takes that route yeah you know um but uh what this film did was it actually used uh an expository montage so so instead of having exposition in the dialogue at the beginning they literally used imagery through the montages and juxtaposition through the montages to create uh the exposition that you need to understand who this character is and what he's become yeah right and that's fucking amazing and throughout like it's it's what's crazy about it is um how well it worked in my opinion you know how 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 um powerful that type of exposition is right and we don't really think about exposition as having power like a lot of um writers and critics think of it as something that you have to just get past right yeah but i've always you know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while i've always been a, a huge proponent of um good exposition like if exposition can be fun it should be you know um yeah and there are films you know like we've talked about before like a lot of um david fincher's films right they're they're purely they purely revolve around exposition you know but um in this situation where you know guy ritchie i'd say his films uh don't usually uh favor exposition right it usually goes more, more towards that moment to moment kind of uh um interaction between characters and that's kind of what it thrives on yeah right um but having exposition like that really really um pushes this along especially since 
you know, its insight is about um, King Arthur and, you know, mainly what it is to be a king. Right? To, uh, to back you up a bit about the critics not getting montage, generally having a bad reaction to it. I saw a review somewhere. I don't think it was on Rotten Tomatoes preparing for this where someone said, and I immediately thought of montage as well in response to this, you can tell they cut so much out of this movie. And I was like, uh, no, maybe they're just making montages. Maybe there's just like a shit ton of montage in this, you know? Yeah. But that's um, that's an interesting, you know, to sort of uh, add on to what you're saying. It is right. interesting. I, that I've actually noticed that a lot with critics response. is like they'll, they'll say things that make it obvious that they don't understand the tools that filmmakers use in tools or sorry, in, mm-hmm. in films. Right. Um, uh, there was there was one. I think it was a I think it was a CinemaSins thing. Right. But. They were they he kind of gave it a gave Interstellar a ping for catching up to the drone too fast. Right. Wow. <laughs> um, when it was clear that they just, you know, cut forward in time. Right. Because like no movie is made in real time. Right. Yeah. Um, but but he, he saw it as a bad thing that they didn't show it in real time. And I, that just baffled me, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of these critics just. Um, well, that's cinema sins in a nutshell. Don't sure. you understand the movies aren't real life? <laughs> Lol, isn't that so funny? Movies aren't real. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I think that's a, that's something that I see a lot is that um, you see you see critics mistake their lack of understanding of uh, methods used in film to tell the story, um, and, and they they treat that as something that's wrong with the film and not wrong yeah. with themselves, right? Um, and I, I, th- I think a lot of these critics end up uh, projecting their own uh, insecurities and things that they have wrong with themselves. Deep down, they know are wrong with them, right, onto this film or onto any mm. film, right? And it's funny because I I, <laughs> I think that these films that kind of break the mold um, act as kind of uh, mirrors in that sense, right, where uh, you can really say anything about these types of films, especially if, like, you don't understand it at all. Right. And it ends up just showing, um, you know, showing what's wrong with that person. Right. And and like, I think what what uh, pissed me off right off the bat when I saw this movie the first time um, was I was actually in the theater with a critic and I saw him like he, he had watched the beginning intro scene for this film. Right. And throughout the entire grow up growing montage, I saw his face buried in his notebook taking notes. Yeah. Right. And he did not look up once throughout that entire montage. He's missed. He missed the whole thing, right? And seems like it would be a basic requirement to just be able to watch a movie and form opinions that you can remember. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Like if you need to, if you need to actually write down what you're thinking during it, like maybe you're in the wrong field, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. When, when when that was happening, and like I, I saw him miss that whole thing, and you know, like I heard him scoff a couple times during the rest, like during the preceding scenes, right? And yeah. I'm sure it's because he he assumed that like the exposition for that character had not been created, right? Mm. Um, but it had. He just missed it because it happened over like a what minute and a half period, sure. right? Um, which he assumed was just the title sequence, I guess, and just like buried his, you know, head in his notebook. Um, mm-hmm. but that's the exact kind of thing that um, you know, I, I see happening with these critics is that they're more in it for um 
their opinion, not so much to watch the movie. No, oh, yeah. You know, um, I've also noticed that critics tend to hate characters that go above and beyond, right? That that exceed your expectations of what it means to be a great man. Sure. Um, they they want they want people to be rotten and uh, weak on the inside, right? Sure. And I would say that, like in this film, uh, you know, Arthur does go through a lot of, uh, you know. He he does go through a lot of weakness, but it's I think it's weakness ten steps above where a lot of these people are, right? Um, yeah, like you know he's very selfish at the beginning, right? He only cares about himself and his immediate circle, um, and that's something he has to overcome at the end. But when you when you present people with a character like this, they usually call them like a Mary Sue or something, right? Um, just because uh. They, their their goal of who they want to become is far above what these people could even imagine. Right? Sure. Um, and it, it's hard making films like that because you are talking about people that um, like 90% of your audience will not relate to. Right. And like when you make a movie about, you know, fucking King Arthur, right. One of like a King that's has a legend, <laughs> you know, yeah. surrounding his name. Um, you you have to go above and beyond with this character. You can't just sit there and pretend like he has the same weaknesses as the rest of the 98% of the world. Right. Um, yeah. And I would actually, I agree with what you're saying, but I would push back on the one thing that people can't relate. I mean, there's a reason that King Arthur mythology has survived and things like, you know, Homer have survived and oh, I'm sure. sure there's, you know, I, so I guess I mean I like think... it's hard for crit- critics to relate. Right. Oh yeah. Um, just I, because, I, yeah, they they hold themselves in such high esteem anyways, right? Yeah. I think I think it's hard for them to look up to someone. Right. Um, hmm. which I think like that's something that like for for example, when I watch this film, I'm like, wow, this guy is fucking awesome, right? And I look up to that and be ask myself how I can be more like that in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Right. I agree with all um, of this, but I would also point out that I think there's some even more simple things of why they reacted to King Arthur the way they did, where sure. pretty much if a movie just has CG, um, mm. there's going to be like, that's yeah. it's, it's as simple as that. There's going to be critics that are going to take a swipe at it for that reason alone. Sure, if sure. the movie is more of a blockbuster, there's going to be a good amount of critics that are going to be, you know, more inclined to take a swipe at it for that reason alone. Um, and I yeah. think it, it goes back to, the social signaling thing of being able to say I have rare and obscure taste and sure, you know, as opposed to this, this, you know, this is puerile. It's too, you know, it's, it's for the masses, you know, um, yeah. it's lowbrow or something. Um, right. But, you know, I would actually say being lowbrow and highbrow is fine. You don't want to be middlebrow. And that's what, where <laughs> most of these critics, um, fall. Right. But, um, um, but yeah, so go ahead. continue on. Yeah. Also, another thing that I think hurt this movie a lot was the trailer. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but I liked the, the trailer. Uh, the one with the what was yeah, that, the, Led Zeppelin? the music that's like, you know, that breathing. Yeah, I liked that. No, 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 not the not the music that's in the movie. Like it's the I think they had like an actual rock song. I remember a trailer that used that music that's in the movie. Um, yeah, that that would be fine. But um, in theaters, there was a trailer that uh, I think it was like their number, their first trailer that they put out, and okay. it was using some classic rock, and it made it it made the uh, 
film look like a B movie. Okay. You know, and after I saw it, even I was like, oh, shit, like this is going to be a bad movie. And then I went and saw it and my my impression was immediately changed in the first like, you know, minute and a half. Sure. Um, but I don't think a, a lot of uh, a lot of critics aren't there to change their mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, they're there to go in and substantiate what they already believe is true about the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's what that's another thing that like I've, I've noticed that any film that has kind of like a little bit of a crappy trailer, you know, or, or not even a crappy trailer, but a trailer that doesn't um, doesn't substantiate what the film is. Right. Yeah. Um, you you have kind of a backlash when, um, when this actually happens, and I I think this is a problem, um, not with critics but with uh marketing departments, right? Mm. Where their whole goal is to get butts and seats, and they will do anything they can to do that. Right. So, um, but I should say they they have this more like broad mentality where they're thinking, oh well people like this type of movie more. So we're going to make it look like this type of movie. That'll get more butts and seats. Yeah. Right. And people get there and they get disappointed because they're not receiving what they expected. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the, one movie that I actually always point to, uh, for this is drive, right. Where, no, yeah. um, There was an initial like knee jerk reaction where people didn't like that movie opening week just because what the, uh, what the trailer yeah, it was purported as like an action crime film and right it was right like, you know like <laughs> not that at all right no, no um but it's that's one of my that's one of my favorite movies of all time and i think it's uh one of yeah, it's uh, reffin's masterpieces right um but like <laughs> that trailer made it look like the fast and the furious Right. And honestly, I can see why people would walk in and be a little upset because they were coming in to uh, to watch this, uh, you yeah, know, driving action cars. All, yeah. Exactly. Right. And there's there's like maybe maybe 30 seconds of driving in that whole movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's the opening sequence and that's about it, really. Right. You're right. And then there's like a what, like a two minute chase sequence later yeah um, yeah. yeah it's nothing right turns around a corner really fast another car flips and it's over you know right so. um and i think that's something that should have been done in this movie like if if this was presented to be more um guy ritchie-esque you know and not this kind of like um oh uh there was a trailer for the world of warcraft movie that came out at the same time as the king arthur movie Right. Mm. And I shit you not, the World of Warcraft movie looked better in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, but just because, like, you know, they, they went with more like traditional fantasy music and stuff like that. And um, that's something where, like, you know, I was just baffled that they didn't use Daniel Pemberton's score here mm. in the in the trail in that trailer one after like. Yeah, after they did watching the next the movie. trailer. That's good because like that score, this, the score is another thing that I think this movie is uh revolutionary in, right? Yeah, this very, score very is good. fucking amazing, right? It's, um, it's very, very different in terms of what you're, what you expect out of fantasy films. Um, but I think it's, I, I personally think that that is what made Guy Ritchie's aesthetic work in this respect was the score, right? Mm. Like if it didn't have the score, I felt like it, I feel like it would have maybe clashed a little bit. Right. Um, but 
bringing this um actually if i can bring up another movie the the robin hood movie that just came out recently um they they did a similar thing to this film where they kind the of one with jamie fox yeah okay. um that brought this modern aesthetic to robin hood right yeah um but the way they did it in robin hood kind of clashed a little bit just because um it didn't really feel like it had a place right it didn't have yeah. um it felt in, in, inauthentic for a Robin Hood, film, right? You know? Right, and it was it was um, in like the costume design, in the speech, that kind of thing, and like that that kind of thing made it feel a little bizarre, right? Whereas putting it putting that modern aesthetic into the um, into the editing and the score, right? Hmm. That's what I thought really did this film justice, and I think those are the out of everything in this film, I think the editing takes the cake for oh yeah big time um, yeah like this is this is a masterpiece in terms of editing and a masterpiece in terms of the score right yeah. and if you're gonna watch it for any two things watch it for those two things right and and, and watch it for jude law because jude law is amazing oh yeah but his yeah. performance is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i love jude um, law i mean it's always amazing but in yeah. this as well it was also amazing um yeah <laughs> But honestly, the acting across the board was really good. Um, yeah. I thought it was cast really Agreed. well. Um, one thing that I really, really loved about this film was the uh, was uh, how they how they did magic and how they didn't explain it at all. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love um, that. I love that yeah. so much. There is um, a huge trend uh, among fantasy in general, fantasy novels as well, to sort of. Uh, walk away from like the classic rendition of magic which is you know someone says a poem or just has the power to do it and try to sort of create like quasi-scientific systems to like right right explain why things are happening and it's like that's fine if it's done well but i've always had a favor you know my favor goes towards the older way of doing it and i i think it's refreshing well and what i think what what i think about this is that like they don't like it he does have reasoning for how the magic works, but he doesn't explain it to us, right? Yeah. Um, but what's cool is that he does use uh, juxtaposition throughout the whole movie. So you can actually garner a little bit of how this magic actually works, right? Mm. Um, but it still doesn't explain, like, how it works, right? You just know, like, what some of the uh, some of the rules are, mm-hmm. right? Um, like, for example, he uses the same camera move and the same uh, type of structure to teleport someone, right? People are teleported exactly two times throughout this movie, right? And it's always within a round structure, and uh, the camera is always spinning around them, and the background changes as we spin, right? Um, yeah. But I think that's cool because it's reminiscent of the whole, like, uh, uh, like fey mythology thing where, like, you know, you never want to step in a uh circle of like mushrooms or something you know yeah because it'll like quote unquote teleport you somewhere or like bring you into a different world right and Mm -hmm. i i like that that was just thrown in there without any like uh like no one no one pointed it out in the dialogue or anything like that you know Mm -hmm. it was just in there and another thing was the uh was uh how how these mages these wizards like gained power right and it was essentially by uh creating these uh what is it uh like monoliths or you know any some tower. Sort of structure right like they have to yeah. they have to create these like uh monuments to themselves almost right mm-hmm. um or maybe to whatever deity they're uh serving right yeah for like the black uh, magic that was for the right right 
and the larger the the larger the monument, the more power they they receive, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that's a very interesting take on um, on magic and uh, and the reason that I like that obviously is because it has to do with um, uh, it has more to do with power, not necessarily literally magic. Yeah. Right? Um, There's and- also contrast because if you looked at the good mage. Her power was sort of natural, you know, had everything to do with right. nature and animals, whereas his was sort of like this industrial, this sort of false thing. Right. right. Um, so it's nice contrast. But can, right. Go ahead. Um, but I, I love that, you know, when, when you when you st- take a step away from like, you know, explaining all the intricacies of how that magic works, um, you end up being able to bring bring it closer to uh you know something in the realm of symbolism right where you're where you're using it to represent something in our world and in this case it would be uh power right power influence that kind of thing um and you see this guy essentially like sacrificing everything that's close to him building these monuments taking over empires right and it gives him this magic right um and in, in a sense it's it's almost like power made literal yeah um which i think is really interesting and uh something that did this really well was the old star wars films right um where where like you know the original trilogy the the force was kind of this uh you know it, w- it wasn't representative of the same thing but you know it it was uh it was not explained it was definitely looked at as something that was symbolic mm-hmm. right um, whereas I feel like it was, it was, I think that was the whole, uh, when the, uh, episode one, two, three came out, everyone had a bit of a backlash towards, uh, midichlorians. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's actually where that came from is because like, it, it almost takes away from what that, uh, yeah, it's the scientizing of a magic system, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. And it takes, it takes away from the symbolism behind what you're trying to actually show about that. Right. Yeah. Um, but in this film, th- th- like that's kind of what I wanted to see more of in this, and not to say in this film, but like I'd wish they had been able to continue the series and show us more of this world because it's extremely interesting, in my opinion. Right, this kind of yeah. like uh, uh, well, it was set up for uh, a sequel. Uh, I think it was set up for we'll a be... series. Uh, yeah, I think they were going to go for franchise. This one. Yeah, but we're we're not getting it. So no. But, hey, we got the first one. Okay, we can be yeah. happy about that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, um, but it would have been interesting though because uh, Guy Ritchie is a really good filmmaker, and it would have been uh, yeah. it would have been cool to see his take on you know the whole King Arthur story. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just I really loved how they showed magic in this. Um, the sword was extremely interesting um, to touch on your point from earlier. Uh, I think one of the one of the things that. Uh, that was like a little worse about the film was just their use of CGI, right? I think like I, I think what they tried to do was, uh, you, you know, that scene in 300 where where they're like taking on the Persians at the beginning and it's like zooming in and out going in yeah, like, yeah, yeah. fast motion to slow motion. The first like, scene think, where he uses the sword. Uh, yeah, yeah. Powerfully. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's ring. essentially what they were trying to do, you know. Um, yeah. but Zack Snyder just kind of like nailed it with 300 and like, this was, uh, I, I felt like theirs was a bit of a pale imitation. Yeah. You know, um, I will say though that, uh, 
talking about the CG, yeah, it was just sort of it was sort of generic. It wasn't bad. It wasn't fantastic either. But right. there was a lot of very interesting, and a lot of this had to do with editing, a lot of very interesting visual effects they did in just like yeah. shots where you don't necessarily, couldn't necessarily quantify it as CG, um, you know. And also just like, I guess you could just call it cinematography. Some of the the shots they did to uh, heighten them like running away and running towards people. Oh, I love uh, that, yeah. <laughs> um, also, they had a lot of different kinds of close-ups on faces where they would sort of almost dislocate the head outside of, you know, make the foreground and the background almost on different planes. Like they weren't connected in, in terms of the motion of the frame. Right. Um, there was lots of, there was lots of stuff like that. Very masterfully done in that regard. Um, I liked all, you know, and this film was littered with that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I like it when there's an abundance of something. I'm yeah. a maximalist. Okay. Fuck minimalism. <laughs> uh, when you go for something, you should go for broke. And Guy Ritchie does that every time. And so I just yeah. like seeing a, a film that's just saturated in that kind of stuff. And it's, it's done very right, well. Right. So, yeah, but I mean, this, this is very much a Guy Ritchie film. And I, I think like I was week one, I was looking at a lot of the reviews and it was talking about how. The film, you know, like you were saying, there, it felt like there was a lot cut out. It was moving too fast, all that kind of shit. And yeah. I go to these critics and I see that they're, they rate Snatch a 10 out of 10, you know, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so the same thing. <laughs> 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 like, um, it's, it's so bizarre to me that like these people can compartmentalize that much. I know, you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's also it, just the having to be like it's good or bad. It's just like you know, right. and like like something the Rotten Tomatoes only you know quantify it only exasperates this problem. Um, you know, this is why I've never liked um, uh, you know rating the rating systems of critics because mm. that that's what essentially just gets focused on, and then that ends up reflecting back into the actual criticism, the actual writing of the. Cri critique itself and it just becomes so black and white but uh, right but go ahead um but anyways i i honestly think that critics don't really like guy Ritchie. i think i think they see him as you know um too over the top in general um mm -hmm. which is absurd to me like i i think he's i think he's great but yeah um yeah no i i personally think that this was his this this was his style just uh perfected to you know perfected to such an extreme and also within a fantasy movie which i never i never thought that those two would be the things that meshed yeah um but it's so great because you have shit like that as well you think about something like snatch and you think about how the scenes move in and out of each other there was a great moment in this film i loved where uh he's he's finally you know gonna fight along the rebels right and they're mm -hmm. talking like okay there's six barons okay you know high lords <laughs> we need to get their support and so they cut to the scene where they're gonna get support of the barons but the scene is actually a fake scene because the scene is just following their conversation of how it might go but right. within the fake scene they're still conversing as, as they are at the table right um, <laughs> you know and that's just that's yeah. what you're saying it's just the it's just like sublime uh you know guy richie it's just right it's just you know and there's that's all over this it's not just that there's a non-linear aspect to how they're telling the story it's like the scenes are within within each other it, they're not just out of order there's several times where you know they're bouncing 
back and forth within the same, you know, where the scenes are right, bouncing right. back and forth within each other, as opposed to just being out of order. And it's just, um, it's just amazing. You know, it's watching that gives me a similar feeling to like watching some, some of Lars von Trier's films where it's just like this very refreshing thing where it's just like, oh yeah, if you can pull it off, you can do anything. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and it's just, uh, it's just, you know, it's just cold water. It's just, uh, refreshing. So it's very yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, but like I was saying before, I think that, uh, Daniel Pemberton needs to receive a huge shout out here because, um, man, just this score, the, the way that it's kind of set up is that, uh, you know, it, it, it acts a lot like, uh, kind of like, you know, your classic rock music. You know, but it uses all instruments from the period, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's very very percussive. It's not like uh, the fantasy music that you're used to hearing, right? It's not very classical. Um, I actually, do you want to pull one up? Yeah, Nick, let's do that. What uh, song were you thinking? Um, why don't we do the uh, grow up growing uh, montage at the beginning? Uh, so this one's called Growing Up uh, Londinium. Okay, uh, Daniel Pemberton. Sweet. All right, everyone, we'll play that song and we'll be right back.
Man, what a cool style, though. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> man, that song, man. <laughs> uh, Anyways, no, but we're it's, back. It's, it's so interesting, and it's like such a it's such a cool new take on uh, just how to score uh, something fantasy. Yeah. You know? Um, and on, that's the kind of thing that makes me think like between the editing in this film and like that score, I, I really think people are going to come back to this film in a you know a couple years and be like, oh shit, you know this is really fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and I don't know. I just I just think. There was a lot of there was a lot of reasons before this movie came out to write this movie off, you know, and that between sorry between that and just like the fall of the herd mentality and critics, I like it's no wonder why this movie got panned. Yeah, you know, but I do think if this came out, you know, in a different era, you know, one where films had two year runs, you know. We, we would have been seeing a very different picture uh, surrounding how critics received this film, you know, uh, just because people would have eventually come around and said, oh, wait, this is really good. Right. Um, and the well, critics that, would have had it, to follow you know, suit. And that's the interesting thing is like, you know, Rotten Tomatoes has influence over people going to watch the movies, marketing departments do as well. But what right. people are, you know, a sizable enough audience will end up watching a film if it goes to theaters and they thought it was good, you know? Right. And right. that's like such a, it's just such a contrast. Um, you know, so that's, that's the saving grace of everything is I generally think the audience is pretty much correct. <laughs> Most of the time, <laughs> right. I rarely ever disagree with like the audience assessment on whatever site it might be. Right. Um, you know, Rather, you know, because if it's above a 50, it's a thumbs up. If it's below a 50, it's a thumbs down, essentially. And I really disagree with that myself. So, right, right. It's just the critics. You just can't. So, but, you know, fuck them. You know, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, do you have more to talk about in that vein? Or should we do the insight as you see it? Yeah, let's go. Let's go do it. All right. <laughs> go for it, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, okay, could, so... I could bring up a few things myself, <laughs> but I think you probably have more. You've talked about this insight to me a little elaborately. So, yeah. So, um, I mean, the first time I watched it, uh, the thing that stuck out to me like a sore thumb was the whole, um, you know, all of us look away like it's normal for men to look away. But that's the difference between a man and a king. Right. Yeah. That whole scene with the mage and the king uh, by the water. Um, that to me was a very um, crystallizing moment for the film, right? And then, and then beyond that point, you essentially have him like, the, especially when uh, the snakes attacking the uh, uh, attacking the castle, that giant snake, yeah. right? You have this moment that um, you know they make extremely explicit. They even use the hero shot where like they're coming in from an extremely low angle, right? Yeah. As he refuses to look away from the snake, is it like you know? Mm -hmm. uh hisses and his this massive snake is baring its teeth in his face right um but uh you know just just from an initial viewing that was the main thing that stuck out to me um obviously because it it uh kind of follows suit throughout the rest of the film right um even in his like flashback later uh we we have this moment where the kid who his kid version of himself who we know uh, closed his eyes, didn't look, and floated yeah. away on a boat. 
opens his eyes, which didn't actually happen. Right. And sees his father um, being killed by his uncle. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and these moments uh, really indicate that like, Hey, this, this theme is extremely important. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the insight for this film. And I think uh, it was on my second viewing and we, we had a conversation about this, but um, how there's this kind of monologue uh, monologue at the end, how uh, Arthur kind of expresses to, uh, Vortigan that he's the reason that he even exists right that yeah. that he he essentially through his great evil created him right and yeah. this is this is summed up in this final line of this, this monologue that he whispers to him that i missed the first time uh and the line is that uh you make sense of the devil yeah right um and essentially what i think this is this means is that these these um these great evils, these great injustices in the world bring about um, the force, the force of good, this, this, these righteous men, these like great men that will take them on and destroy them. Yeah. Right. And that makes, that makes the evil almost make sense. Right. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. You know, it, and to back you up when Jude Law's character because uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name. Uh, initially, he kills his wife in order to gain power. He sacrifices his wife in some sort of blood oath with these, uh, you know, Satan mermaid creatures. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think they're and, sirens, right? Yeah. Si- yeah, harpies or sirens or something. Who knows? But uh, he goes down there once um, um, it, it's clear that, uh, you know, the rightful king is alive and can pull the sword from the stone. Yeah. sort of thing because the, the sword emerges essentially and he's like he right. goes down there it's like i you know we had a blood oath but they're like you know they essentially said what you just said it's like um because you're doing this you are bringing forth um the rightful king you know it's right, this right. balance act so you know the price to pay if you want to try to fight him otherwise just go and try to kill him all you can but that's they essentially communicated what you just said so right right Kudos. well and that's, that's another thing that's cool is that they, they use this like magical explanation right yeah um to explain uh, to, to essentially use as symbolism for something that uh guy rich is trying to say about the actual world in general right that mm-hmm. um these these people who commit these hor- horrific evil acts just like a lot of people see them as these chaotic like they, they they can't understand them at all right and like they they can't understand why you know this would be allowed to happen in the world. Yeah. Right. And I, I think this is a very, like, this is actually a pretty optimistic look on that. And in, in this sense that like, you know, this is what brings about moments of greatness in these, uh, these people that are capable of these extreme moments of strength and, you know, um, yeah. and, it makes sense of the devil, right? Yeah. Um, and it's cool. Like that's that's actually indicating what we were talking about a while before about how like magic in this film isn't really explained at all, right? It's just kind of stated. It's just kind of done, you know, mm-hmm. as if that's how things work. And it's symbolic of how uh, these more uh, micro functions of the world work, right? Yeah, sort of morality. It's almost like a representation of morality. Sorry. Right, right. So. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a simple one, but it's very good and it's very well yeah. done. 
Um, I think we need that too, <laughs> especially <Yeah>. these days. <laughs> uh, and, and like, it might be simple, but I feel like it's also something that a lot of people don't know these days. Uh, no, I agree. But you know, I, I mean good things by saying simple. So <laughs> sure. Sure. Right. Um, but it, it like, I don't know. I, th- I think this, this film was done extremely well. Um, in terms of what wasn't done super well, I'd say that it's like just the CG. I think I, I understand the use of CG with the sword where they kind of wanted it to feel unnatural. Yeah. Right. Um, because it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be, you know, this legendary sword that is, that wields some sort of magical power. Right. So they wanted it to feel a little, obviously they wanted it to feel unnatural because of, you know, the effects and stuff that they put on it. But I think it would have been cooler if instead of copying 300, they just, you know, tried to do their own thing. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. And then I think uh, some of the lines for the mage were just like uh, the English was too proper. What you said. Her. Yeah. What you yeah. said about acting. All the actors are great. I, I you know, I wasn't going to bring it up, but now you're bringing it up. I was like, yeah, except <laughs> for maybe her. Maybe it was her dialect, like you're saying. But yeah, well, that's, that's what I think it was, where there was kind of this uh, uh, disconnect for me between how. uh how well put together her thoughts were in terms of like the, how the English was actually strung together versus her very obvious. Uh, I mean, like she's probably pretty good at English, but it's obviously not her native tongue. Right. And I feel like her lines were written as if it were her native tongue. Well, that's what I was you know? wondering as well. Watching. I was like, is she trying to put on some sort of accent? I or... don't think so. Well, and I think that that's, that what... could also be it. Well, I, I don't think she is, but I think that's what is creating that thought is that like, the lines are a little too like uh like familiar or like native sounding right mm-hmm. for for that accent <laughs> you so know? a way and that like, could have been fixed is uh to write it as if it was more of a, a second foreign yeah second yeah like language, a, for- a second uh, yeah a second language right where it was just this uh she was trying to communicate these ideas that were like you know that she obviously knew in her native tongue but was, was a little bit harder to communicate in english right yeah and what i would have done personally is when i cast that girl because i think she was a great fit for the character right and Mm -hmm. she was she did extremely well in her acting in terms of like um i'd say like 90 percent of the lines like that yeah yeah and like it was just some of the lines just felt a little too um like honestly what i would have done is i would have cast that girl and immediately went back to the script and broken up the english a little bit more yeah you know um, or just let her break it up how she would say, it, you know, just like instead of writing the line, just be like, all right, just don't don't learn the word, the lines verbatim. Just like say it how you would say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I actually don't. We should actually look really quick and see if she is from. Uh... OK. Yeah. OK. She's a French. She's a French Spanish actress. So English is not okay. her native tongue. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So th- that would have been great in my opinion if they just like gone in and uh let her kind of have her way with the lines mm-hmm. you know um yeah i mean but those are those are such small things you know like <laughs> no i agree um, i was just about to be like okay so the cg was standard and uh uh you know the lines on a character didn't fit perfectly well most of the time but uh, right very small. that's that's really it and like there was maybe one or two shots where i was like eh you know but nothing (laughs) where it was bad you know just (laughs) like not as incredible as the rest of the film and it's like that's 
still and i think i think it was always uh shots that involved cg you know maybe an indication that like you know they didn't really know what they were shooting when they were shooting it yeah there's constraints Um, as well right right and you can't ask for perfection on that front so like it's honestly this this was a great movie i would say like for me it's on the cusp of being a masterpiece yeah um like if they had fixed those few things i think it would have been um I don't know. Maybe it still is, and I'm being too hard on it. My my instinct is not to call it a masterpiece. I don't. I wouldn't rate it as Guy Ritchie's best film, but I think it is a okay. it is a great film. I think it's yeah. a great film. Um, but I think you know, it's it's a little bit of a personal choice. There is there is a obviously a lots that is objective about it, but there is a personal element in, in calling. Yeah, it I, I think the thing that makes me want to call it one is just the the revolutionizing of the fantasy film yeah that's true you know um just whenever someone does something that's so like fresh and new like this it makes me it makes me want to give it more brownie points you know no i agree um yeah but the real question is has justice been served for king arthur (laughs) what do you think have we done it (laughs) i hope so i mean like have we made our point will the critics think so cry will they wail and will there be wailing and gnashing of teeth of the critical class i don't think you can ever ever (laughs) rip them from their delusion (laughs) um Um, they just have to be replaced one day that's yeah yeah but no honestly like if if you are at a party and you want to like you want to see if someone's full of shit just ask them what they thought of this movie yeah you know (laughs) Um, there's always there's always films like that that shit test films (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) but no i I so what is what are what's your opinion on michael bay (laughs) (laughs) exactly or or um what was it what's your opinion of interstellar that's a a good one that's a great shit test film um i like to use the last season of game of thrones a lot Mm -hmm. um all these things are like just great shit test films because they were like hated universally by uh by internet critics at the beginning and like they just they they literally just shot the same vernacular around the internet too like these this like same lines verbatim right Mm -hmm. throughout all of them and like when you're at a when you're at a party and you're trying to shit test someone to see if they're full of shit like it's so fun to just ask them what they think of these films and just hear them regurgitate these lines that you've heard a million times on the internet right (laughs) um Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just, you know, it's it's a great way to see whose opinion you should listen to and whose opinion isn't their opinion at all, but an yeah. opinion that they just copy pasted into their brain from the internet. Yeah. You know, um, not to be a complete dick, but you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's how it is. Yeah, it is. How it um, is. all right. Well, that was the first episode of justice Four, um, and we'll be continuing this. We'll we'll do it again for other films. We have two two more films which we will not tell you that we are thinking of doing, um, <laughs> and I'm sure there will be many more to come. So, but yeah, yeah we'll be back again in a week, um, and uh, we don't know what we're going to be doing. So, no watching ahead. So, go fuck yourselves <laughs> and have a good week. <laughs> yeah, see you guys. <laughs> yeah, here's uh, an audio clip uh, of Guy Ritchie, probably. All right, see ya. <laughs> see ya. <laughs>
And that took us actually a lot of work to try and create someone that was interesting enough and not earnest enough. You know, King Arthur's a good guy and you're in all sorts of trouble with good guys because good guys tend to be boring guys. So we made him not so good. And we gave him the journey of not necessarily becoming good, but a journey that is, a tra I suppose, about this, the transcendence of self, which doesn't necessarily make you good, it makes you interesting. So our job was to make Arthur interesting. King Arthur's really a story about every man that can transcend his limited small self as that of a victim to that of a king. Charlie and I understood what we wanted King Arthur to be and you know we had a I had a vision then he joined that vision and then within that vision he brought his own nuance and personality to it but we understood a sort of frequency of a personality if you will um, and he we had a shorthand to that so we both knew what we wanted to extract from that character and he was just incredibly efficient about making that manifest. Joby brought two things to the equation, uh, to the story, and, and that first off was the fantasy aspect, and second off was diluting some of the characters. The problem with the, the Arthurian legend is it's so, so dense, within two hours to try and condense all those characters, um, just meant that it was too rich a stew to eat. So you take out some of the ingredients and put in the fantasy aspect. Um, they were sort of fundamental components that I think have made the film, firstly, possible to make. And secondly, it just added enormously to the entertainment factor. I mean, I like entering new genres, so it was a new genre for me, uh, and it was refreshing. The film had gone, nah, the tone's wrong. So right there, and then five seconds before we're about to start filming, we go, Oof, I think we'll throw that out the window. What we'll do now is this, that, and the other. And it, it took us all of 30 seconds to come up with a new idea. And it's a completely new idea. But the film had dictated that we were going in a different direction. And it, as I say, our job really was just to be sensitive to that and go, that's not our tone anymore. And is that the reason why the romance ultimately was, was cut out of the? Because it's funny, now having seen the movie, I can't imagine that a ro that, that plot would have I'm quite worked. enjoying this interview, aren't you, Charlie? Because there's a catharsis taking place in this. Because Charlie and I haven't really, I mean, we're obviously aware that the romance evaporated. But that's exactly why the romance evaporated, is because the movie didn't want it. We went into it with a quite a traditional point of view, and as you go into it, the movie was just, it was going to reject it all day long. It was, and yeah. as you say now, it seems absurd that the, we had this rather traditional romance that was going through there, but it's a very, actually, as I say, we haven't talked about it, and that's the, that's the most eloquent illustration of it. <laughs>